So brothers and sisters, this morning as we look at the final five or six verses of Matthew chapter 11, these are, I'm sure, familiar words uh, to many of us. And what is the context and the setting in which Christ speaks these words as the chapter concludes? I don't have uh, time this morning to review all of the chapter, so I won't attempt to do that. But you can see that as the chapter opens in chapter 11, uh, Christ receives messengers from John the Baptist. They find out that uh, John is in prison and he's asking about the deeds of Christ. And John has this doubting question about whether uh, Jesus is the one who is to come or whether he should look for another. And John, in his mixture of faith and doubt, receives these words from Christ. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, Christ says. Christ then gives a lesson to the gathered disciples about the nature of John's ministry, who he is and what the Lord sent him to do. And we find that in that part of the chapter, there were some among the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, who rejected John because of his simplicity. John did not come with uh, eloquence and brilliance. He came in a humble form. He had unusual clothing. He had an unusual diet. He was a voice crying out in the wilderness. And they did not accept John in part because of his simplicity. And so Jesus says in verse uh, 16, to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So those of that generation who were wise in their own eyes rejected John because he came <clears throat> singing a dirge. He came in humility and disgrace, and the leaders and the wise of that generation rejected him. And how did Christ, came? How did Christ come? Christ came eating with tax collectors and sinners. He came as a physician for poor, sin-sick souls. And what did they say of him? They slandered him as a glutton and a drunkard because of the way that he behaved. The lesson, therefore, of the first part of the chapter is that those who are wise in their own eyes will not receive the message of God, no matter how it's sent. Uh, for them, the word of God falls upon deaf ears, whether it's presented in simplicity and mourning, or if it is, in the case of Christ, presented uh, with joy and rejoicing, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, in the next part of the chapter, then begins to denounce the cities, verse 20, where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And he calls down woes upon Chorazin, on Bethsaida. He says, if the works, the miracles uh, done in them had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And he says it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for Capernaum. If the mighty works done in you, he says to Capernaum, this is verse 23, had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So we find, therefore, that in the first two portions of the chapter, 
Christ, uh, as the evangelist by the Holy Spirit records his teaching, is teaching us that it is repentance that is pleasing to the Lord. It is a repentance that the Holy Spirit himself gives to us. It is his gift. It's not something that is generated by our will. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it is repentance that is pleasing to the Lord. Jesus then in verses 25 through 30 gives a summary, you might say, of his teaching. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. I think that this is a summary of the chapter's teaching. And Jesus begins by giving thanks to the Father, recognizing his authority over all things. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. There are a number of contrasts in this verse that are rich in significance for us and rich in comfort. And first is that Christ recognizes his Father's authority over all things, and then he recognizes his Father's action in the ways of salvation. And what has the Father done? He has hidden these things from the wise. Who are the wise? Well, in this generation, it is those who are wise in their own eyes, who, as I've already mentioned, will not accept the Word of God no matter how it is brought to them. They find every opportunity and excuse to complain about the way that it is delivered. It's delivered in a fashion that's too simple. John is rough and coarse. He lacks polish and eloquence and so forth. He's unusual in his appearance. They find fault with the way that it is presented when it comes in the gentle and rejoicing way that Christ brings it. Look at the kinds of persons that Jesus fraternizes with. With whom does he socialize? He spends his time with tax collectors and sinners. He eats with people like Matthew. He goes to Matthew's house, that enemy of his own people, who was in the employ of the Roman government in order to extract revenues from his fellow man. He was hated, but not to Jesus. Jesus makes a friend of Matthew. He rescues him from his uh, sin and his rebellion. In fact, elevates him to the position of an apostle so that the most famous uh, book really is uh, the Gospel of Matthew, a, a really unusual and ground-shaking uh, literary work which the Holy Spirit caused Matthew to write, a tax collector and a sinner. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise. So those who are wise in their own eyes will find that the things of God are hidden from them by God's sovereign declaration. Calvin, uh, discussing this verse, says that if the things of God were revealed to those who are wise in their own eyes, men would swell up with an uncontrollable pride. They would inevitably reach the conclusion that I understand the things of God because I'm so wise. Because the Lord has given me a kind of worldly wisdom which allows me to understand things that others cannot. I'm paraphrasing Calvin's comments on the verse, but don't they ring true to our experience? Uh, if you have or if I have some little way in which we uh, seem to be wiser than those around us, it immediately becomes a cause of pride. We pride ourselves on the things that we know in comparison to others, and we uh, immediately adopt an attitude of contempt and scorn. We forget 
that there's nothing that we have which was not given to us. We forget that everything we have proceeds from the Father's hands, from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow of turning. The Lord deals with this human pride. He uh, addresses it by hiding his salvation from those who are wise in their own eyes. I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise. And this ought to be our attitude as well. We ought to imitate our Savior in this respect. We ought to despise ourselves in our supposed wisdom and understanding. Uh, We must deny ourselves when we feel wise in our own eyes and long to be like little children in humility and dependence. Augustine, when he was arguing with Pelagius and the other Pelagians, he said that this is the, the primary difference between us and you, Pelagius, is that you look down upon infants, you look down upon babies, because you think you are already grown up and emancipated and you have no more need of dependence. But Augustine said, we want to be like infants in Christ. We want to be like that weaned child with its mother described in Psalm 131. From the mother comes all source of good and sustenance and comfort for the infant. The entire world of the infant is for a time caught up in its mother's lap, in its mother's embrace for food and comfort. And so are we to be with respect to God, utterly dependent upon him for all things. He is the source of our comfort and joy and sustenance. This is something of what it means to be a little child. It's not to seek a kind of independence from God, but to confess our utter absolute dependence upon him at all times. So Jesus tells us that in order to rebuke and chastise human pride, the Father has hidden these things from the wise and from the understanding. Now, don't misunderstand. This is, this is in no way a rebuke to the acquisition and the preservation of true knowledge. Of course, we ought to seek to know things and to use that knowledge for the glory of our Heavenly Father. This is a rebuke to those who are wise in their own eyes, the persons described in the earlier part of the chapter. But what has God done as well? At the end of verse 25, we're told that the Father has revealed them to little children. The Father has revealed these things to little children. This teaches us a number of things. It teaches us first and foremost that the Father will reveal the knowledge of his salvation to whomever he pleases. Uh, It's not the case that those who are respected and wise in the eyes of the world are first in line for the revelation of God. And it's not the case that those who are small and foolish and despised in the eyes of the world come in last in terms of approaching the things of God. Perhaps today we have a kind of sentimentality about little children. Perhaps today we have a romanticism about little children. We take pictures of them. We dress them in special clothes. We think they're so cute. Uh, This is not a sentimentality or a romanticism that was shared by the ancient world. Uh, In the ancient world, there was far less of that sentimentality about infants. They were seen as far more helpless and dependent. They died easily. Uh, It was a a delicate and and difficult business to care for little children. It's much different than today. And yet the same kind of pride that would dismiss children uh, then uh, exists today. But God has chosen to reveal the hidden things of his kingdom to little children. Now, sometimes people say, 
Well, Christ is not saying explicitly that he has revealed them to little children, but the, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven and of salvation have been revealed to those who are like little children. Because after all, Jesus says uh, somewhere else in the gospel, uh, to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Do not forbid them because to, to such belong the kingdom of heaven. So some would say, well, Jesus is just talking there in, in general comparative terms that you have to be like a child. It's not, he's not saying that you, you actually are a child in terms of receiving the revelation of heavenly wisdom. And Calvin's response to this was very apt and, and memorable. He said, yes, it's true that Christ is saying you have to become like a little child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. But who is more like a little child than a little child? If it doesn't apply to a little child, it doesn't apply to anyone. And therefore, the text shows us plainly that the hidden things of the kingdom of heaven have been revealed to little children. It tells us that plainly. And what does this mean? It means that a tiny little faith without a full and intellectually developed confession is nevertheless the gift of the Heavenly Father, and it is a real faith because He has revealed them to little children. This has all kinds of implications, of course, uh, for the place of children in um, the covenant community and in the uh, local church, but I won't develop all of those now. You can think along those lines uh, on your own as the Lord enables you. But it is clear that the Lord has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Who's more helpless than a baby? Who's more foolish in some ways than a little child? But this is not how the Father sees them. He has deliberately from the lips of children and infants ordained praise for what purpose? To silence the foe and the avenger. To quote from that psalm, it's almost a ridiculous image. Who, who is in the vanguard of the Father's war against pride and sin and foolishness? From the lips of children and infants, he has ordained praise for the express purpose of silencing the foe and the avenger. At the forefront of the Lord's army, you might say, to bring to shame the haughty things of the world are infants and children, because to them he has chosen to reveal the things of heaven. And why did he do this? And Christ tells us in verse 26, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Uh, the word here, yes, repeated, of course, because, or verily, because, Christ is emphatically making the point that we may not have drawn from the previous verse, but he doesn't want us to miss it, so he underlines it and emphasizes it as the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to write these words. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The gracious will of the Father is to welcome little children and all who are like them in spirit and temperament, in repentance and humility and contrition into his kingdom and to exclude the haughty and the proud and the wise. And when we hear this, we should not, we should not have uh, contempt and scorn for those who are wise in their own eyes. We should instead fervently pray, Lord, save me from such an attitude that I don't be wise in my own eyes because I don't want the things of the kingdom of heaven hidden from me. Instead, make me like a weaned child with its mother. Give me that contentment and dependence that knows that the heavenly Father is still there caring for me and loving me and providing all my needs in a tender and compassionate way. 
Jesus says in verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. If I had uh, more than three hours to preach, I think Mr. Kelderman gave me, was it three hours was my time limit? I think so. If I had more than three hours to preach, I could perhaps uh, develop all of the points or many of the points in verse 27, uh, because this is high and profound mystery. It discusses, as you can see, the inner Trinitarian relationships between the Father and the Son. And I don't have the time to develop all of those uh, important principles things that the, the Son reveals to us about His relationship to the Father, about their consubstantiality, uh, about their co-eternality, about the mutual self-revelation in which the, two, uh, the first two persons of the Holy and Sacred Trinity are engaged. But I want to focus primarily on the last part of verse 27. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You have a little sense here of the divine plan of salvation. That the Father and the Son and the Spirit covenanted together before all worlds to rescue a portion of that uh, mass of perdition, that fallen humanity, who by our own free will plunged ourselves into misery. And the method of salvation is for the Son to be sent, uh, the eternally begotten of the Father to take on flesh and to come down and live among us and to walk among us and to undergo all the miseries of this life. <clears throat> on our behalf, and in the process to reveal and disclose the Father to such as the Son chooses. You can see at the end of 27, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Such a person knows the Father. So how is it that we can have peace and reconciliation with the eternal Creator of all things? In Him we live and move and have our being. He made us he made our souls, He made our bodies, He made every aspect of our experience. He not only made us, but He, he made this uh, incredible theater of His glory in which He placed us, where we can behold His incredible handiwork at all times. And yet, without the Son's revelation, uh, we would know the Father only as our enemy. All of creation would rise up against us in um, enmity and hostility because of what we did in the garden. When we stood there with our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we disregarded <clears throat> what the Lord told us to do, we deliberately and willfully and stubbornly chose rebellion against the Father of all creation. So how can we be reconciled back to Him? How can we have peace with God? This is the way. The Son must reveal the Father to us. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Christ has already told us that the Son chooses to reveal the Father to those who are little children and those like them, not those who are wise and understanding in their own eyes, but those who are weak and contemptuous and dependent. I should say contemptible, not contemptuous. This leads Christ then in the two summary verses to give this call to all who have ears to hear. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why did Christ come into the world? Christ came into the world to save sinners, as Paul said, of whom I am the chief. Christ came into the world to choose the things that were low. He came to men like Peter and James and John, who were living in uh, a backwater of the Roman Empire, this little um, inconsiderable Judean province where there was no glamour, there was no power, there was no authority. And he revealed himself to the lowest and the most despised of persons. And Christ came to reveal himself and the Father to such persons. And he gives this call, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We notice in this verse several things. First of all, the call is to a person. The call is to the person of Christ Jesus. The call is not to a way of life or a philosophy or a thinking. These things are true, obviously. Being a Christian comes with many implications for how we are to think and how we are to live and how we are to structure our lives and interact with others and how we are to behave and how we are to spend our money and what we are to wear. And uh, all of these things are implications of the Christian life. But the call is primarily to come to a person. It begins with coming to Christ. Come to me, Jesus says. Now, of course, in this, Christ is identifying himself as the source of authority. Uh, there lies behind this phrase, come to me, which is unlike anything the prophets say. There lies behind this phrase, Christ's recognition of his divine identity and mission. It's uncontrollable arrogance and hubris to offer persons salvation in yourself unless you have the authority and ability to grant it, which is precisely what Christ has. You don't find the prophets speaking this way. Moses and Samuel and others, they don't speak this way. They always direct us to the law and to the will of God. But Christ directs his audience to himself, which is a significant point that we must not overlook. As we grow in knowledge by God's grace and in holiness, not, not the foolish pride of the world, but in true knowledge by God's grace, we become ever more desirous of knowing Christ himself. As Paul says, I want to know him and his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to be found in him. And so in some way to arrive at or to reach the resurrection of the dead. We long to go to Christ. We long to know him because he calls us not to a philosophy or a way of life. He calls us to himself. Come to me. Whom does he call? And he doesn't call those who are proud in themselves. Yes, they receive the external call. Don't, don't misunderstand. But this is directed to those in particular who labor and are heavy laden. What does it mean to be, uh, to be laboring and to be heavily burdened or heavily laden? It means primarily with sin. It means to feel the effects of the fall crushing our hearts and our lives, uh, to consider our relationships and our interactions, our motives and our intentions, and to find how far short they fall of God's perfect wisdom. We cannot conceive or execute any kind of choice or decision in our lives without it being 
tinged and corrupted with wickedness of some sort. When we try to hit a straight shot, it goes crooked. When we try to do something right and good, even in the context of the church and the life of the church, things go astray terribly. This is laborious and it's, it's, it's burdensome on our shoulders. Jesus doesn't in any way deny the effects of the fall and the crushing nature of sin and its burdens. He openly acknowledges them. He has pity for us. He has compassion because he knows that we are flesh. It's the same kind of compassion that drove him in the garden to follow after Adam in the cool of the evening and to call after our first parents as they were crouching and hiding somewhere and to catechize them and to say, what have you done? Where are you? What have you done and why have you done this? And words to that effect. It's this kind of compassion that seeks out the sinner. Christ says, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden. Sin is burdensome and miserable. It's crushing. How shall we escape it by coming to Christ? We should notice as well, there are no conditions put upon this. There are no conditions put upon this. Uh, now, repentance is a condition of our salvation. Only those who repent are actually saved. Repentance is a condition that God himself meets by granting us free repentance. He gives to us the repentance that we need. So don't misunderstand me. It's not as though those who are unrepentant can receive salvation. There must be repentance. But he does not require from us a repentance that he gives us. Let me emphasize that. But he does not require from us that we have any sense of moral improvement or cleanness before we come to Christ. It could not be put any more clearly. Come to me, not those who are good or wise in their own eyes, who have made the first steps to righteousness, but those who are miserable, who labor and are heavy laden. We as believers must not forget this. We must not allow our sorrow over sin, whether our own or someone else's, else's sin, to prevent us from seeking to come to Christ. What does it mean to come to Christ? Well, he's seated in the heavenly places. Uh, our flesh is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So to come to Christ at this time, uh, no doubt meant come out from where you are and listen to his message Hear him preaching about the kingdom of God and how to gain access to it. It means the same thing for us now. Come to Christ means to listen to uh, his preaching, to be baptized and to receive the Holy Supper, to engage in prayer. It means to participate faithfully and with uh, true conviction in the ordinary means of grace. In a word, it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross and to follow after him. This is what it means to come to Christ. And what does Christ promise to all those who are laboring and heavy laden, who feel worn down and crushed beneath the weight of sin? He promises rest. You notice at the end of the verse, and I will give you rest. You notice that Christ is concerned, I would say, in all three clauses in this verse, to demonstrate, to underline, to emphasize his sovereign generosity. He doesn't even say in the third clause, and you will receive rest. He doesn't even say in the third clause, and the final condition will be rest. 
something like that. Why? Because that would give opportunity for human pride to say, I'm in some ways participating in the rest that I'm receiving from the Lord. Because he said, come and look what I did. I came and therefore I should get the reward, should I not? What about all of these people who don't come to Christ? What's wrong with them? This is the way that human pride rises up so quickly and strongly in order to choke and extinguish the grace of God. And so to remove every excuse of that obnoxious human pride, Jesus says in the third part of this verse, and I will give you rest. It is not the reward of your righteousness. It is my gift. Of course, Christ wants us to grow in righteousness. There is no one who is justified who is not also sanctified. Don't misunderstand me. In fact, in book three of his institutes, Calvin deals with the subject of sanctification before he deals with the subject of justification. Why is this? Why spend an entire chapter explaining uh, the biblical, that is the Protestant, the reformed view of justification before talking of sanctification, before talking about justification? Well, for, for two reasons, uh, and they're very closely related. The first is that many of his Roman opponents were saying, you're teaching a kind of easy believism. If we adopt that Lutheran idea that justification is by grace alone through faith, what's going to happen? You're going to have a lot of um, licentious, uh, out-of-control persons, wicked persons. The church is going to be stuffed with wicked persons who have no desire for righteousness. This was the common criticism uh, leveled against Luther and Calvin and company. You can't tell people that justification is a free gift of God. There has to be some human contribution to it. Otherwise, what will you have? Churches filled with lazy slobs who don't care about righteousness. And of course, that's exactly what Pelagius said to Augustine. You can't tell people that the Christian life is a kind of infantile dependence on a good God to give you everything that you need for life and godliness. You have to tell them that they need to contribute something or you're going to have churches filled with lazy and undisciplined persons. So Calvin says, following the scriptures, no, everyone who is justified will be sanctified. There are no exceptions. <clears throat> and he puts it first because he wants to show that this is how often we experience it. Uh, in our own lives, in our own psychology, we begin to wake up by God's sovereign grace and by the operation of the Holy Spirit, we begin to wake up to the things of God sometimes before we realize that we're justified. That gift of repentance works in us, and then we understand fully what it means to be justified. In the same way Jesus says, that was a little bit of a historical digression, but this is a seminary, so you'll forgive me, right? I will give you rest. It's my gift. And here's what it is. It's rest. It means the unburdening from your shoulders of the crushing weight of sin. And no more a yoke either. What, what is the purpose of a yoke? Heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says in 29, which is an indication that we are supposed to switch yokes. We're no longer to have a worldly yoke of the crushing burden of sin. And what is a yoke for? A yoke is to direct a stubborn animal in a direction that it wouldn't necessarily go. Uh, in the old days, if you wanted to plow a field, you couldn't um, stick the key in the ignition and 
turn it on with a, a million horsepower and you know 25 uh, large tires or something and, and take your tractor out into the field and till the soil. You had to go to the barn and find the animals, an ox or a, uh, a donkey or a mule, and you had to place upon them this yoke. Why? Because they're uh, brute beasts. They don't have understanding, intelligence. And they have to be directed by this heavy controlling implement. Is this what the Christian life is like? Jesus says, no. He says, take off that yoke. He says, I will put upon you another yoke. I will give you rest, the end of verse 28. I guess which we should better say that he takes the yoke off of us. He removes from us that burden because I don't want to concede an inch to self-righteousness as though we could even take the yoke off in the terms of the metaphor. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me. And this verse also promises us many things. It says, first of all, that the Christian life has a yoke. Uh, and Christ does this, no doubt, because the Christian life does come with certain obligations and responsibilities. But the motivation is entirely different. In fact, it's so different that we don't experience it like a yoke as the Lord blesses us and as we grow in godliness by His grace. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. In the same way that Jesus said at the beginning of 28, come to me, now he says what? Learn from me. If we're unwilling to learn from Christ Jesus, then we are not his disciple. And what are we supposed to learn from him? Don't misunderstand me. The Christian life is not primarily an imitation of Christ. The Christian life is receiving from Christ the imputation of his righteousness and all his gifts but there is imitation of Christ in the Christian life. The scriptures are very clear in that. And what are we supposed to learn from Christ? What kind of a person is Christ? We're supposed to learn humility from him. We're supposed to learn self-denial. We're supposed to learn cross-bearing. We're supposed to learn gentleness. We're supposed to learn from his words and from his example as his Holy Spirit applies these things to our lives, we're supposed to learn how to be like him. And this process is called mortification. It's the putting to death of the old flesh, and it's called vivification. It's the coming to life of the new man in all of Christ's righteousness, so that we will someday be like him when we see him as he is. What kind of a teacher is Jesus? And what is it like to sit in his school? So here we are at a seminary, and uh, all of us, pretty much all of us, uh, right now are either students or professors, and I think all of us have been students or professors at some point. What is a classroom typically like? Well, there's an authority structure. There's someone whose job it is to teach and explain and impart information and to evaluate and so forth. And there are students whose job it is to listen, or at least pretend to, listen attentively and take in the information and write things down and recapitulate it at the right moment. These are some of the aspects of a classroom. And I'm sure you've sat under good teachers uh, who love their subject and love their students. You can tell they're motivated by a true desire to learn and to be of service. You've probably sat under bad teachers and you've probably sat mostly under average teachers because as have I, this is how life is. It's a mix of things. What kind of a teacher is Jesus? 
when he says, learn from me. What kind of a teacher is our Lord? He's the best of all teachers, and he tells us uh, perhaps the most important respect in which he is the best of all possible teachers. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. If you are a teacher, uh, as God has has given me the privilege of being a teacher, uh, I hope it is our prayer that we would be gentle. Gentle does not mean disregarding of the truth and tolerating ignorance and laziness. Gentle means compassionate and merciful, knowing that the burdens of sin are heavy and they lay on people's shoulders. Jesus says, I am gentle which means that no one who comes to him is a smoldering wick that is extinguished or a bruised reed that is crushed and broken in half. He says, I am gentle. None of us can say this in honesty because we know there's always some sin that clings to our gentleness. As we walk in this world, we will never have a true and full gentleness until the Lord cleanses us at the last day of all imperfections. But Jesus can say this because he is virtue itself. He is the vine and we are branches. He says, I am gentle. How wonderful to meet a person who's truly gentle, who never looks upon you with contempt and scorn, uh, but always looks upon you with mercy and compassion. This is the kind of teacher that Jesus is. And just in case we miss the lesson because we're so foolish and bad students. We're so slow to learn. Isn't this true? I'm not talking about my students. All of my students are, of course, wonderful. But me as a student, we're so stubborn and resistant to the truth. We don't easily accept the truth. Jesus repeats it and amplifies the message so that we get it. He does this because he loves us so much. He says, not only am I gentle, but I'm lowly in heart. There's not an ounce of arrogance. There's none of that nasty pride which bedevils and dogs every attempt to teach and to learn. You've all sat under proud teachers. I've I've been a proud teacher. You know something that your students don't, and it's delightful to know something. So you show them what you know. And maybe you've been a proud student. You know something that your classmate doesn't, and can you believe that guy doesn't know this still after the fourth or fifth time that it's been explained? This is not how Jesus is at all. He's gentle. He's gentleness itself, and he's lowly in heart. Never uh, was there, has there been, or will there be someone who has more right to boast. I mean a human being who is also the God-man. There was never anyone, never will be anyone, who has more right to boast in knowledge. Through him all things were created, without whom nothing was made that has been made. He's that perfect wisdom described in the book of Proverbs. And yet look at how he describes himself, gentle and lowly in heart. And what will we receive? It's the same as the promise at the end of verse 28. You will find rest for your souls. So I ask you, Christian, what do you want? What do you want from life? So often, questions of teaching and learning have to do with our desires and our appetites. Augustine knew this well, which is why he says in his work, The Teacher, that we only learn the things we want to learn. 
When it comes to human instruction, you can lecture to a classroom of 30 people, and how many different lessons will be absorbed? 30 different lessons. Why is that? One message, but 30 different lessons, because we only learn what we want to learn. When it comes to teaching and learning, it's all about our desires. So what has to, be ha what has to happen in order that there be true instruction? The Lord has to reorient our hearts and desires so that we want the things that are good for us instead of the self-destruction that we so often desire. And Augustine makes one exception in uh, his work on the teacher. He says, with the exception of the Christian faith, we don't teach ourselves the Christian faith. We have to teach ourselves every other lesson that we learn, but the exception is the Christian faith. Who teaches us the Christian faith? It is the Holy Spirit himself. Now, he uses ordinary means. He speaks through weak and fallible men who preach to us. He works through our parents and many other persons in order to use them as tools and instruments that we might know the Christian faith. But it is the Holy Spirit alone who teaches us the Christian faith. This is why so many hear and don't believe. It is because the Holy Spirit is not teaching them in their hearts. What do we want, Christian? We want rest. Isn't that what we want? We ought not want the pride and recognition the elevation and the loftiness of the world, we should want rest. The more we feel the brokenness of the world, the more we understand that the wages of sin, the wages of sin is not diminished ability or a little less honor and, and glory than we would like. The wages of sin is death. The more we will desire the rest that Christ alone gives. I will give you rest, he says in verse 28 and in verse 29. Come to me as your teacher, Jesus says, and you will find rest for your souls. Souls here does not mean uh, just that immaterial part of you uh, that will survive death and later be rejoined to your body. It means that, but it doesn't mean only that. Souls here means your entire person. You will find rest, body and soul. In this life, you will find rest for your soul. And in the next life, you will find a glorious rest in your body that has been raised incorruptible. Jesus ends with these simple words in verse 30. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is the Christian life supposed to be like? Well, it comes with obligations. It comes with responsibilities. But it's an easy yoke. It's so light you can barely feel it upon your shoulders. Why is it that the Christian faith is not like other religions that are highly prescriptive? Judaism and Islam and other religions are highly prescriptive. This is the time of day you're supposed to pray. This is what you're supposed to eat. This is what you're supposed to wear. This is the direction you're supposed to face when you pray. You have to kneel at this time and you have to stand at this time and don't eat during this month and do eat during that month. Why are these other religions generally so prescriptive? I've mentioned Judaism and Islam, but we could look at the pagan religions as well. It's because they're not aimed at the maturity of the sons of God. They're not interested in raising people up who, by God's grace, will worship Him freely with their hearts. But Christ is interested in this. Don't misunderstand. The scriptures contain many instructions. In fact, everything we need for life and godliness we must not neglect or disregard the commandments of the Lord as to how we are to live our lives. 
But it's not a matter of don't eat, don't touch, don't observe. He's growing us into uh, children who are <clears throat> free in Christ, which is why Paul says, don't let anyone put a burden upon you if you've been set free. And Jesus puts it in these words, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Christian life is one of incredible and glorious freedom because we have come to Christ. Our burdens and our heavily laden shoulders have been removed and set free. He's our gentle, patient teacher, lowly in heart, a perfect teacher. So what ought we to do, beloved, as a result of these words? I think I've explained many of uh, the implications of the passage or what we might call application. I will just end uh, with this admonition. Um, let us renounce ourselves and all pride. What does this mean? It means to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Not to say, I'm so glad I'm not like that other guy, which is what the, the Pharisee said, but to be like the tax collector and to strike our breast. To, I've sinned against you and against heaven. Have mercy upon me. And also to rejoice in the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. This ends the preaching of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts this morning. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this text. We thank you, Lord, for uh, preserving it for our consideration and our, our comfort. Thank you that we can hear it read and preached in a language that we can understand. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who has promised to apply all of these truths to our hearts. We ask very simply, Lord, that you would humble us under your mighty hand, that you may lift us up in due time and cause us, Lord, to deny ourselves, to forswear all pride and arrogance, which are so close to us, so easily beset us. Help us, Lord, to bear the cross that you have uh, ordained for us, whatever it may be. We thank you for the temptations and struggles of this life, which we acknowledge are our own doing and a consequence of our weakness but which you use by your sovereign kindness to conform us to the pattern of your Son. Help us, Lord, to bear whatever adversity or hardship you send our way, knowing that they proceed from your hand and you design them for good, no matter what evil others mean them for. Help us finally, Lord, to follow after you. As your, your Son is seated in the heavenly realms, so may we meditate on the future life and sincerely desire to quit this world and be joined to him and to know him fully, even as he knows us. We pray, Lord, that you would apply to our hearts the lessons of this passage and cause us to grow in faith and godliness. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.